On Shark Week, the podcast from Discovery Channel, separate shark fact from shark fiction. Could you combine a shark and a human? Does the megalodon have ancestors alive now? With the help of experts in the field, uncover the scientific explanation behind these shark tales. Listen to Shark Week, the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch Shark Week starting July 7th on Discovery and Max. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I dot com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. Just a heads up, there are a few swears in this episode. A couple of years ago, Effie Kong was walking on the sidewalk with her little sister. They were in Somerville, Massachusetts, a city just north of Boston. It was a pretty lively night, you know, February, but it was not super frigid and it actually felt like quite festive um, and alive. So we were both in good spirits. And then Effie and her sister went to cross the street. We actually tried to cross once and I pulled her back and I was like, oh wait, let's wait um, until the way is clear. By the way, Effie's sister is much younger. She was just 12 years old at the time. And then I told her a joke and she was laughing and then asked We were still in the wake of that joke. We were crossing the street. And then they were hit by a car. Time slows down. I almost have a shot-for-shot memory. Like if you were to look at a film up to the light. My first thought was, did I just get hit by a car? And then my second thought was, I couldn't have just gotten hit by a car. This doesn't happen. And then my third thought was, is this guy going to stop hitting me with his car? And then he slams on the brake. I get whipped down, and I fully face-planted on the pavement. I took um, account of how I was feeling and was like, I can't get up. Like, I, I feel weak. I feel really weak. The ambulance came, 
and took Effie to the hospital. Her little sister was okay. Effie, on the other hand, had a brain bruise. They monitored her to make sure it wasn't more serious, and then they discharged her. But for an entire year, Effie suffered from a kind of brain fog. She could barely even remember her own phone number sometimes. And then, even after recovering from that, the emotional trauma stuck with her. If I'm just crossing the street with anyone that I know, um, I will hold on to them. I think it just lives in you of just, like, cars will run you down. Every year in the U.S., there are well over 3 million people injured by car crashes, and tens of thousands die. This is a problem that electric vehicles won't solve. In fact, studies show that pedestrians and bicyclists may be more likely to die when hit by EVs because they're quieter and heavier than gas cars. And because safety is one of the issues that stops people from driving less, some folks are saying that electric cars aren't just part of the solution, they're also part of the problem. I'm Nate Hedgie, and this is The Race to Net Zero, building a car-free future from outside in. In order to meet climate goals, we need to decarbonize the transportation sector. So we're mining massive amounts of metal and spending billions on building more EV charging stations. But what if replacing every gas car with an electric one isn't our only or even the best path to net zero? In this episode, producer Felix Poon takes us to Boston and then Seattle to try and understand the barriers to car-free or car-light cities and what people are doing to break them down. So, Felix, Effie's a friend of yours, right? Yeah, and after I heard her story, I was curious to know, like, who's to blame? Not just for Effie's accident, but for the hundreds of people hit by cars every year in Boston. So I talked to this guy. So I'm Yasha Franklin Hodge. I'm the chief of streets for the city of Boston. And by the way, I asked Yasha what he thought about electric vehicles. And actually, he and his husband just got one last year. And on the first day, his husband drove it. We were having dinner that night, and he said to me, you know, a lot more people are going to die when everyone is driving an EV. And I was like, what do you mean by that? And he said, it is so fast, and it, it just, it feels like a car designed to make you speed. So a big part of Yasha's job is to try to slow cars down. Mm -hmm. Like, according to the World Health Organization, slowing cars down by just 5% can lower crash fatalities by up to 30%. Cars are dangerous. You know, you have vehicles weighing thousands of pounds that are moving feet from people who have no metal shells, no airbags, no seatbelts. Well, yeah, when you put it that way. (laughs) Which is why a lot of people feel safer inside of a car than they do outside of one. Take my friend Effie, for example. She takes ride chairs everywhere. Do you lift more or do you take public transit more? I lift more, she says, with a dose of shame. Why? What's, what's behind the shame? It's just not very green. It goes against my feelings of wanting to do my part. 
Okay, so if we want people to drive less, they have to feel safer getting around outside of cars. Right. But here's the thing. EVs, yeah, they're fast. But Yasha says the real barrier to slowing cars down is the way we built our country's infrastructure. Every car on the American road is a sign of our progress towards a better way of life. Yasha says it's not really the driver's fault for speeding. And it's not even the posted speed limit either. It's the way we've designed our roads that tell us how fast we're supposed to drive. With its seven lanes accommodating traffic at designated speeds of 50, 75, and 100 miles an hour, is engineered for easy grades and for speed with safety. So I should mention that street safety, it's definitely important for small towns and rural areas too. Mm -hmm. But we're mostly looking at cities in this episode just because there's more opportunities for going car-free when you've got urban density. For you in Boston, you've probably got way more options than I would living in Montana. And a lot of cities across the country are redesigning their streets. They're undoing a lot of that car-centric infrastructure to make things more walk, bike, and transit-friendly. Mm-hmm. Transit geeks have all sorts of names for this, like traffic calming measures and complete streets. So that means more bus lanes, better sidewalks, uh, safer, slower streets that people feel comfortable walking on or letting their kids walk on. I mean, that sounds actually kind of nice, right? Like fewer lanes for cars, bigger sidewalks, places to eat. Well, it does depend on who you ask. Like, it's not just car lanes, but parking spots get taken, and businesses are like, without parking spaces, people won't be able to park here and shop in my business. Mm. So that's a big pushback I've seen in my reporting. Yeah, like, you might lose some customers coming by car, but at the same time, like, you might gain people who are walking or biking there. Yeah, and studies have shown that businesses overestimate how many of their customers come by car. Hmm. Plus, people who come by walking or biking usually spend more time in the area than people who just drive there. Going back to the car lanes, I guess another thing that I could see people getting frustrated about with, like, wouldn't it make for even worse traffic? Um, is that the point? Drive, make driving more inconvenient? Some transit activists would argue that this is actually the point. If it saves even one person's life, then it's worth it even if drivers' commutes take longer. Yeah. But taking away streets for cars can actually even cut down on traffic. Like in 2009, when New York City closed off Broadway and Times Square, pedestrian injuries dropped. But get this, traffic actually moved 7% faster based on GPS data from yellow cabs. Huh. Why, why was that? Yeah, it's because the intersection got simplified. Broadway's a diagonal street, so instead of three flows of traffic, there were only two, so drivers didn't have to wait as long at the traffic light. Okay, so slower cars mean safer streets, fewer fatalities, and maybe people like Effie would feel safe enough to walk or take public transit. Or to bike. Uh, according to a 2022 survey, 50% of Boston residents said they would bike more often in the city if there was more biking infrastructure. Okay, so safety is a big factor. But the other big factor here is public transit itself. Like, if it's not fast enough, reliable enough, it it doesn't matter how safe it is, people aren't going to use it. And this is why I think Boston is a great case study. I mean, I live here and I know Bostonians are ready to drive less. They've been ready. Um, I would totally support using my car less often. 
And I think this Boston resident I spoke to last summer named Lachey Johnson put it best. You can quote me too. I hate driving in this city. So, yeah. Say more about that. Why do you hate driving here? Have you driven in this city? Like, okay, then you know my frustration. Everyone here drives... But the listeners might not. So. Oh, you're right, you're right, you're right. I'm sorry. Basically, Nate, driving in Boston... It's a shit show. <laughs> I get that driving in any city is stressful, but Boston is in a league of its own. Yeah. Streets are super narrow. There's no parking. None of the roads make any sense because they're not in a grid. They're all crooked because they're basically paved over cow paths from back in the day. People are ready to ditch their cars, but buses and trains, they're kind of a shit show too. <laughs> driving into downtown Boston, it's not fun. I make that commute more often now these days because of the Orange Line um, mishaps and everything. Last year, the state's transit agency came under federal investigation after a bunch of high-profile mishaps, including a man being dragged to his death. Wow. And then during the investigation, a train even burst into flames when it was crossing a bridge over the river. Oh, man. I remember I remember hearing about that in the news. Terrifying stories from this fire on the Orange Line. Passengers broke windows to get out of that train. One even jumped into the water. WBZ's Anna Myler talked with that woman. That's wild. So the state has started addressing the staffing and safety issues that the investigation called out. But even when the system is working at its best, a lot of people drive because in most cases, it's just faster. Like, if I wanted to visit a friend in Somerville, one city over, it takes me 30 minutes by car. But if I want to take the train, I have to go into downtown Boston and then transfer to another train to take me out to Somerville. So that's twice as long. And so are there any plans to actually grow the system out in Boston? Technically, yes, but it's not much when you compare it to how much is spent on repairs and updates. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of repairing to do because, like a lot of cities on the East Coast, Boston's subway system is old. It just had its 125th year anniversary. This thing is as old as zippers and radios. (laughs) I didn't know it was that old. And a big part of the problem has to do with taxes. Not to oversimplify the issue, but public transit is funded in large part by taxpayers across the state of Massachusetts. They don't want any more tax hikes to pay for a system that mostly benefits the people of Boston. We're not even having a serious conversation about major new rail lines. This is Yasha Franklin Hodge again, chief of streets in Boston. There are places in the U.S. that are doing this, right? Los Angeles, Seattle, right? These are cities that are, are investing year over year on a consistent trajectory to build a more robust and a more complete transit system. We're not having those conversations. The questions, we're, the conversations we're having is, you know, why does it keep getting worse, right? How can we stop the bleeding? Why is my train on fire? So what are these West Coast cities doing differently? Like, what are, what are they getting right? Well... I took a trip to Seattle to find out. Well, we can sit up at the front if you really wanted to. Best seats in the house. I love these double-decker buses. They're just like, they're so cool. (laughs) That's right after the break. But first, if you live in a place with public transit, we want to know, do you take it? Is it any good? Or is it better to have a car to get around? And if so... What would it take for you to ditch your car? We've already heard from some folks, like Lewis in Detroit, Michigan, who wishes things were different where he lives. 
So uh, I hate having a car, um, but the city I live in really is designed exclusively for cars with a million highways crisscrossing the downtown area um, and making it really impossible to walk uh, from one neighborhood to the next. So I, I hate it so much, um, but at the end of the day, my city isn't really set up for living um, in any other way than having a car. And then there's Molly from Melbourne, Australia, who wonders if the focus on EVs will distract us from better city design. I worry that suddenly we'll go, oh, electric vehicles are here, so therefore we don't have to worry about roads and urban design and making cities more friendly to active transport rather than cars, even if it is an electric car. So send us your thoughts at outsidein at nhpr.org. Or you can give us a call and leave a voicemail at 1-844-GO-OTTER. We'll be right back. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie, and fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Felix, you've got Mint Mobile, right? I do. I've been using it for a couple of years now. Why'd you get it? Because it's just easy. Was it like cheaper? Or I've always seen like the Ryan Reynolds ads and I've been like... Yeah, it's, it's ended up cheaper for me. Basically, I don't use a ton of data. Usually I'm at home, so I'm just using Wi-Fi. But when I'm out, yeah. like, I don't watch any videos. The most I'm doing is listen to podcasts, which doesn't take a ton of data. Yeah. So Mint Mobile is just like one of those plans where I can like set it to just, I only need like five gigs a month. And at the end of the day, I only pay 15 bucks a month for it. So it's like the uh, the cell phone plan for people who maybe don't want to spend six hours a day on the subway watching TikToks. I think, though, it is customizable so that you can, like, if that is what you do, they have options for that. I just don't know because, like, that's not me. I just, like, zero in on exactly what my needs are. And I'm like, oh, Mint Mobile uh, can meet my needs for this pretty cheap price and I go for it. But yeah, I know I know they do have plans with with more data. For a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a 3-month plan. That's like way cheaper than what I'm paying now, just just to say. I mean, that's what I pay all the time, so <laughs> Okay, I'm kind of jealous of you. Yeah, so to get this new customer offer and your new 3-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash outside in. That's mintmobile.com slash outside in. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speeds slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Did you know that one in five Americans have learn a new language on their bucket list? If that's you, make 2024 the year to check it off your list with Babbel. Unlike other language learning apps, 
Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks, which is something I could definitely use because my French is uh, ha bon, not good, and I really want to go backpacking in Quebec this fall. Babbel can help with asking for directions, where the best coffee shop is, the best brewery. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash outside in. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash outside in, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash outside in. Rules and restrictions may apply. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie, here with producer Felix Poon, who was just about to take us from Boston to Seattle. So to be fair, Seattle is still a pretty car-dependent city. The per capita rate of cars to people here is nearly double the rate of Boston's. But between the two cities, Seattle is the one expanding its transit system in a big way. So I went there to see that expansion for myself. We have a good bus system. It's very, very good. But the buses go quite, metro transit goes quite far. Can I just say how rare it is for like anyone to see something good about public buses? <laughs> so public transit in Seattle is mostly the bus system, which as we heard is pretty decent. The city has a commitment to make sure you're not waiting longer than 10 minutes for a bus. In Boston, I've waited 30 or 40 minutes for buses before. Seriously? That's long. Yeah, it was enough for me to swear off of taking buses in Boston ever again. I don't blame you. As for Seattle's subway system, they opened their first light rail line not too long ago in 2009. That means it doesn't cover as much ground today, but the trains and the stations are newer and nicer. Now entering University Street. Doors to my right. Sounds like a spaceship. Yeah, and these don't catch on fire. Ah, there's the Boston joke. (laughs) So one of the first things I did in Seattle was take a ride on a double-decker bus on a highway leaving Seattle. I'm glad we ended up on a (laughs) double-decker. You could actually see, like, all the stuff. I could see miles and miles of elevated light rail tracks under construction. The further we go, the less constructed it looks, so it's like you see the progress. Now, if all goes according to plan, Seattle's light rail system will be almost double the size of Boston's subway system by mid-century. It's currently the largest expansion of urban rail in the country. And a huge thing that makes it all possible? Taxes. To help explain, I talked to Alex Hudson. Alex is the executive director of Transportation Choices in Seattle. I'd get on at downtown Redmond, and I would ride the 255 to Kirkland and make a transfer at Kirkland. Alex says her life in transit activism really started back when she was a teenager. She was trying to get from her rural hometown to her job in Seattle. But when she tried making a bus transfer just outside the city, the driver wouldn't let her on. She didn't have the money, so she was stuck with no debit or credit cards, and no phone back then. I just remember feeling totally powerless, like there was nothing I could do to fix this. I remember feeling, like, really ashamed. This was a formative experience for Alex. 
and now for the last nine years, she's been fighting to maintain and expand Seattle's bus and rail service and access to it. And let me tell you, it's been an epic battle, full of ballot measures passing and failing, appeals and court cases, and something called a PTBA. This is like, okay, Felix, we're getting into like the wonky sherry here. (laughs) There's a lot of different ways that public transit is funded, and it kind of breaks down into sort of two general categories. It's either a function of an existing government. An existing government like King County, which Seattle is a part of, but the majority of King County is suburban and rural. So most county residents have rarely, if ever, taken transit. So if there's a vote in King County to increase taxes for bus service, you've got the majority of voters thinking, wait, why should I pay for Seattle's buses? And in the past, ballot measures like that have failed. So I think it's neither good politics nor good governance to tax people without giving them something. But there's another way to raise transit funding through PTBAs, Public Transportation Benefit Areas. So they're their own organizations with their own leadership. So say you want to create a new rail line to a neighborhood. If you create a new PTBA, you can have those people who would be served by the new rail line vote. Right. More public transit in exchange for higher taxes. Felix, is this happening outside of Seattle and Washington? Like, what do things look like nationally? Does it break down across party lines like red states, blue states, that kind of thing? Well, transit measures have actually passed in both blue and red states, as long as they're being passed at the local level in cities. But at the federal level, Republicans did want more funding for highways, and Democrats wanted more funding for public transit in that 2021 infrastructure bill. Right. I mean, like, Republicans represent more of rural America, where public transit barely exists, and cars are pretty much how you get around. Right. But back to Seattle, what have these tax increases done for transportation there? So Seattle says access to frequent transit means being within a 10-minute walk to bus or train service that comes every 10 minutes or less. And the number of households in Seattle like this went way up from only 25% to 70% in the span of just a few years. Hmm. Plus, Alex just helped pass legislation that kids 18 and under ride for free. That means her own horror story, when she didn't have enough money for the bus and got stranded, won't happen to kids today. So I sometimes will say, like, the places that you can go is the things that you can be. And so I love that this is telling more people that you can be more things. Which is why when Alex sees concrete trucks and construction signs for expanded rail, what she sees is a more connected world. It's just like hope. It's like we're building hope for people. And... I think it's the most beautiful thing in the world. So I want to take you to one more place in Seattle to talk about another type of safety that's needed in walkable and bikeable cities. It was, I think, in the fall... And so the sun was creeping out. There's a lot of trees, so the kind of the rays coming through, and there's beautiful switchbacks where you just... This is Edwin Lindo. And a couple of years ago, Edwin was biking with a friend in an area of Seattle called Mercer Island. Strong right turns and then sharp left turns. And 
And what you should know about Mercer Island is that there's a popular bike loop there, but also that it's a pretty affluent area. And one day we see a, two older white men, and they were pace lining, so one right behind the other. And we were doing the same. And we, we said, wow, we're picking up some steam, and Aaron was in front of me. Aaron shouted, on your left. And we started going around uh, a bit faster. And I remember looking to my right. I then look at the second person. And I heard him kind of gargle up this loogie. And the first thing he did, he turned to his left and he just spat it at me. And it was running across my shoulder. And I looked back at him and he had this grimace. My mind froze. I kept pedaling, but my mind froze, realizing, like, what are you going to do? You're in Mercer Island. It is a overwhelmingly white town. You can stop, get in a fight, but you know who's going to go to jail. There's no evidence. There's no nothing. This isn't the fight you're going to pick. And what you should know about Edwin is he's a critical race theory scholar. So picking fights against systemic racism is basically his job. And so he and his friend Aaron, they finish the loop and head back to Seattle, and they end up at a coffee shop reeling from this experience. And in that moment, we're like, cycling is hella white. It is so white that there are people who think we don't belong there. Because we said, we got to do something. I was like, Aaron, we can't keep going out there by ourselves and, and expect bad things not to happen. And that was just one example. So Edwin and his friend Aaron, they organized the North Star Cycling Club so that people of color could have a bigger space in the biking community. And I think this story, it tells you a lot about safety, that it's not just the safety from being hit by a car, mm-hmm. but it's also the safety to not be harassed. And when I talked to women, queer people, trans people, people of color, when they talked about how they get around, a lot of them said they feel vulnerable taking transit. Right, because you are so much more exposed when you're not inside of a car, like literally exposed. Right. So North Star is fighting to make cycling feel safer and more welcoming for people of color. But sometimes focusing on safety from racism can seem at odds with safety from cars, even if that's not necessarily the case. For example, there's the issue of bike helmets. Bike helmets lower your risk of head trauma if you get hit by a car, but... How did we go from that to then saying, now we're going to over-criminalize communities that are black and brown? So according to one report, black cyclists in Seattle were nearly four times more likely to get a ticket for not wearing a helmet than white cyclists. Wow. And some of the people getting ticketed were kids. Why are we giving $140 tickets to 14-year-olds? Why are they getting tickets at all? Right. <laughs> Where are they going to get the money from? Where are they going to get the money? Or are we ticketing their family? And so that becomes an even more interesting question, is now we're ticketing communities, and the children are the proxy. So some bike activists argue that they wouldn't need helmets if streets were designed to be safer for bikers. But, given the reality, we know bike helmets do save lives. 
And yet, according to Edwin, enforcing this bike helmet law was only an excuse to over-police black and brown communities. And it only served to discourage these communities from biking at all. So North Star Cycling Club and other groups, they pushed the Seattle City Council to repeal the law. And the City Council agreed. They repealed it, and simultaneously, they decided to fund the distribution of free helmets, something that Edwin had been advocating for all along. So it's, it's been cool to see the, the progress on that and how a, a small group like Northstar can, can have an impact just because we share a very clear racial analysis of, of how things could be. So we've heard from people trying to make it easier to bike, to take public transit in American cities, and that's all well and good. But is it enough? Even if they succeed, these cities are no Amsterdam. Yeah, but Amsterdam is actually an informative example, right? Because it wasn't always the biking capital of the world. They were once heading toward a car-centric infrastructure, too. And then they only became a biking paradise because they chose that path by passing bike-friendly policy back in the 1970s. I hear that, but this is still America after all. I mean, like, we're the home of Ford. We invented car culture. You know, like, it is embedded in us. And like we talked about in the last episode, people are really resistant to change here. You know, it's a dramatic change, right? It would require a lot of dramatic changes that might be at the edges of what's politically possible in the U.S. It might be beyond those edges. This is Thea Riofrancos, a researcher who studies resource extraction and climate change. And Thea created a model where we can make it to net zero with 90% less lithium than other models say we need if we make electric car batteries smaller, if we recycled them, and if we drove less. Right. It's a different or at least parallel path to meet our climate goals that's arguably better for the environment. And as we talked about in this episode, it's also better for safety and, and saving lives. And the thing about models is that models shape the future. Models are used by policymakers to invest in the future we want. That's why we have to ask ourselves, what future do we want? When we scrap our gas cars, do we want to mine as much lithium as possible to replace every one of them with an electric car? Or do we want to scrap cars more generally and build better transit and safer streets so we can drive less? I like the second option. (laughs) That's just my personal opinion. And you're in good company because for the people I talked to in this episode, EVs can be part of the solution, but they have serious limits. Lachey Johnson. You're replacing cars that run on gasoline with cars that are electric, but you're still going to be sitting in traffic. You're still going to have parking problems. Alex Hudson. It still supports the kind of land use and sprawl that contributes to deforestation and other kinds of land degradation. And more importantly, they say we really don't have a choice. We are looking down the barrel of a gun with global climate change. And so that to me is the other part of the answer to why we have to do this. Yasha Franklin Hodge. I want my kids and my grandkids to have a habitable planet, and I don't actually believe that that's possible if we don't start to rethink how we get around. All right, so that's the end of the episode, but is of course not the end of the conversation. We want to know what you think. What do you need to see change in your neighborhood to get around without a car? 
Recognizing, of course, that some of you might live in places where everything is pretty spread out and driving is the only option. Get creative, share your ideas, send us your voice memos, and we might include your thoughts in a future episode or in our newsletter. You can email us at outsidein at nhpr.org or hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. We're at Outside In Radio. This episode was produced by Felix Poon and edited by Taylor Quimby with help from me, Nate Hedgie, Justine Paradise, Jessica Hunt, Mara Hoplamazian, and our executive producer, Rebecca Lavoie. Special thanks to Yes Segura, John Burkhart, Jess Kim, Phyllis Porter, Joanna Valencia, Mary Monroe, Jonathan Lewis, Tom Fucolaro, Jessen Farrell, Daniel Clopton, Amy Shatskin, Jamie Brinkley, Keith Kyle, Clara Cantor, Michael Bailey, Julia, Amy, and Arthur Furukawa, Brooke Nolan, the North Star Cycling Club, Richard Parr, Becca Wolfson, Jackie DeWolf, Louisa Gag, and Boston's Mayor Michelle Wu. Take a breath there. Take a breath. <laughs> Music in this episode came from Roy Edwin Williams and Blue Dot Sessions. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Get everything for your next project today at Menards. Johnson Level has been an industry leader for over 75 years, offering the finest levels, lasers, and layout tools. The Johnson Level 85-foot laser distance measurer captures length, area, and volume. And it also can be used in dusty and rainy environments. View our selection of Johnson Level tools on Menards.com. Plus, check out the weekly flyer for many other great deals happening this week. Save big money at Menards.